We are going to be starting in, in Matthew 18, 15 through 20, or 15 through 18 this morning. I'm, I'm, I'm going to hold off on 19 and 20 until next week. Um, this is probably the most ignored, overlooked, and underused passages in Matthew's gospel. The church doesn't like these verses. Um, we'll go to verse 20, and we like verse 20 because that gives us that, that, that idea that even if it's a very small group, that we're still gathered in Christ's name and He's there with us and we're not on our own. So we like verse 20. Verse 19, we'll sometimes hear pulled out of context. And, and I mentioned that the last time we looked at uh, something along these lines, and we'll, we'll talk about that next week. But verses 15 through 18, we just don't like. We don't like them because they don't fit our emotional reaction to a situation uh, that, you know, we're, we're very comfortable with. So um, I'm going to save the rest of the introduction to these verses because I see you all looking at me trying to figure out what I'm talking about here um, until after we've read them. So if you would, let's let's stand. And I'm going to read verses 15 through 18 of chapter 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, tell, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Sorry, I'm stopping with verse 17. Yeah, let's pray. Father, as I have already mentioned this morning, we are not comfortable with the content of these verses. They are not natural for us. They are not easy for us. They are not something that we would like to do. So, Father, I ask this morning that you would soften our hearts and help us to understand the importance of of this passage and and what it means for our Christian lives, what it means for us to live and to become more like Jesus in everything that we say and do. So, Father, we ask that you would soften our hearts right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, please. So, I want you to think about context. Because most of the time when you hear this passage, uh, if you hear this passage, like I said, we don't like to talk about this passage. You might hear it preached on, but it's not often one that is dwelled upon in the church. Um, if you do hear this passage, it's generally because there's been a situation in the church. There's been something that has happened, and so we preach it reactively. We preach it to, to cover ourselves, to make sure everybody knows how we're supposed to act. 
Jesus has been talking to the disciples about that childlike faith, being innocent in their understanding of the kingdom, being um, almost naive in their trust of Christ for salvation. He's warned them against being the agent of temptation towards another believer. And he's talked to them about the mission that he's on, to seek and to save the lost, right? To go after the one who's wandered away. To go after the one who is not with the rest of the flock. So as he normally teaches, he sets out a a truth, something about the life of a believer, the way we're supposed to believe, the way we're supposed to act, the way we're supposed to understand things. Then he gives a warning about behavior, right? Don't do this. Bad things happen to people who do this. And then he gives us a, a treatment of some sort of God's will towards the people that he's come to minister to. If you look back through his ministry, when we go to the, the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about all of the different things, the different aspects of the law. Don't... Um, don't murder, don't commit adultery, you've heard it said, you've heard it said, but I tell you this, right? And then immediately following the Sermon on the Mount, he ministers to people to show us who he came for, and they're people that we would not have expected, the leper, right? This is no exception right here. At the end of this passage, after all of that stuff that he's been talking about, he gives an example for how the disciples are supposed to live out the truth that he's just been teaching. He starts in verse 18, if your brother sins against you. I want you to pay very close attention to that phrase. If your brother sins against you. Not if you catch your brother sinning. There's a difference, right? This is talking about a personal offense. This is talking about something that goes on and happens between two believers. It's not that these instructions can't be applied towards public sin within the church, but in this particular case, that's not what Jesus is doing with it. He's talking about between two Believers, just like back in, uh, let's see here, verses 7 through 9, where he talks about those who tempt the little one to sin, right? He's talking about believers and believers. He's talking about life within the church. He's talking about our relationships with one another. Right here... He's ta- if the little one should wander off from the pasture of discipleship and commit a sin against you, here's what you need to do about it. Jesus said, go to that brother and talk. Seek them out. Leave the rest of the flock for a little while and go talk to them one on one. This indicates to us that this sin is not a public sin. This is not one of those 
big deal kind of sins that's going to throw discredit upon the church. This isn't like the case in 1 Corinthians where Jesus, uh, where Paul rather wrote to the church and said, Hey, I appreciate the fact that you're understanding and forgiving and everything, but the guy who won't repent from having a, an illicit relationship with his father's wife, he's got to go because that's bringing discredit upon the church. This isn't that case. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go talk to him one on one. Don't make it public. That's why we don't like these verses. Because our gut reaction when somebody hurts us is to do what? Yeah, we go on broadcast, okay? Now, even though I'm a computer guy and I'm, I'm all about, you know, social media and, and connections between people and stuff, there are some things that just should not be made public. I saw a post this week I really chuckled about. You remember back in the day when everybody had a diary and you'd get upset if somebody read your diary? You put everything in that diary. You didn't want nobody to read it. Today we have Facebook. We put everything out on Facebook and we get mad if people don't read it. Sometimes there's things that we need to just shut up about and deal with them one-on-one. But that's not our natural tendency. We, we want to broadcast things out there. We want to throw things out in the public because we can get back at people for how they've hurt us. And that's what we want. That's what our flesh desires. I want revenge. So let's put a, a, a specific example out there. A fellow believer has been gossiping about a situation in your life and some or all of that gossip has been false information. And so they have offended you by telling people your dirty laundry. Okay? Jesus says, step number one, go talk to that person alone. One-on-one. Go out for coffee. Go out to McDonald's and sit down and have a chat. One-on-one. Share your heart with that person. Tell them that they have personally hurt you. Now, here's the hard part. Forgive them, whether they ask for it or not. Whoa, wait a minute. What? Forgive them, whether they ask for it or not. Then ask them to repent. Doesn't that seem backwards? That, that doesn't line up with what we want, right? That doesn't line up with the way we think, right? But it's what Jesus models for us. In his life, death, and resurrection, we receive forgiveness. But now, now I want you to think about this for a second. Now, all of these things can happen according to our understanding of time, how time flows, all simultaneously. But from God's perspective, He has decreed, according to Scripture, who will be saved. Right? Who the gospel is going to affect. Who the Holy Spirit is going to regenerate. He has decreed this. 
And he has said that we are forgiven in Christ. Romans, right? Romans 5, 8. Well, we were what in our trespasses? We were dead, okay? What does a dead person do in order to receive something? Nothing. What can a dead person do? Nothing. And if they do, they're not dead, they're zombies, and then we got a whole other problem. Okay? God forgives us before we can do anything. So if, if you think we have to repent first, in our understanding, maybe we, we think that way, but from God's perspective, you are declared forgiven. First. Before anything else happens, you are forgiven. Now, after we've been forgiven, after we've been reborn, after we've been changed by the Holy Spirit, we become aware of the depth of our sin. Right? Because before that point, what did I care? The natural man doesn't care that it's dead in sin. It's dead. So again, what can a, what can a dead man do? Dead man can't do anything. So it's after we are made alive that we come to an understanding of our sin and what God has done. And that's where Repentance takes place. That's where we, <coughs> excuse me, that's where we understand, that's where we see that we need to turn away from those things and turn towards God. I know there's people out there who are going to take exception to what I just said. They might not be in here right now. They might listen to us on the podcast. I don't know. Repentance is a critical work in salvation. But it comes after the fact, not before. If we say that salvation is by faith alone, then it's by faith alone, period. Repentance is something that we do out of that salvation. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. There may be those who are thinking about what John says. I know if Robbie were here, he would quote it because he's done that before. 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, doesn't that sound like we have to repent first before we get forgiven and cleansed? Sure does, doesn't it? So how do I answer that? One word. Context. Who was John writing to? John's writing to the church. He's writing to people that are already saved. He's talking about what happens following salvation. See, because he goes on to say that we are still sinners. If you keep looking, if you look at the entire context of John, 1 John chapter 1, he talks about we still have sin in us, right? In fact, I, I believe it's verse 10 where he says that if we say that we don't have any sin, then we make God to be a liar. I don't want to be on that side of the fence. 
So he's talking to believers here. He's talking about after we come to faith in Christ. That's when repentance happens. It's one of those things that comes out of our salvation. And it's not a one-time good deal sort of thing. It's not something we can say, well, I've already repented one time, I'm good, I don't ever have to do it again. I wish that's how it worked. It would be great if all I had to do was repent of a sin and I never committed it again. That would be fantastic. And I would weigh 152 pounds. We are constantly to be reminded that we ought to repent and recognize the sin in our lives. It's something we need to do when we sin toward one another and well uh, as well. Now I'm going to ask you to turn again. Turn to Galatians chapter 6. If you get to Ephesians, take a left. Galatians chapter 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. See, Paul's telling us that this is going to happen in our lives. That we're going to have, we're going to have sin in our life. It's going to happen. And if we consider ourselves to be spiritual, we're supposed to go to that one who has sinned and say what? Hey, I'm here to help. Not to help you sin, but to help you get out of it. Right? I'm here to minister to you. Go ahead and put that back up on the board. If we keep going, verse 2. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each, let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. That's not what we're supposed to do. We are supposed to carry each other's burdens, which means we care about other people, even when they sin against us. That's why I said, forgive them first, then ask them for repentance. Who does forgiveness free? The forgiver. Not the one who sinned. Forgiveness frees the one who was sinned against. Because if I don't forgive you for sinning against me, That means I'm dwelling on it. That means I'm holding on to it. That means I'm growing it. I'm nurturing it. I'm I'm feeding it. I'm letting it have control over who I am because I won't let go of that offense. Forgiveness means to push that offense away. So after we forgive them, we ask them to repent. My favorite illustration of the word repent, I meant to have the picture up on the slide and I forgot to. The Greek word that we have translated for repent is the word metanoia, which roughly translates into changing your mind. Picture a U-turn sign. 
In Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Peter and John healed the lame man at the entry of the temple. And if you remember, there was a little bit of a, a commotion after that, right? They're walking into the, into the gate called Beautiful, and there's the guy who's been lame for his entire life. And he's, he's asking for alms. He's asking for people to give him money so that he can buy food to survive. And Peter looks at him, and they make eye contact. And Peter says, silver or gold I don't have, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus. Get up and walk. And the dude gets up and starts doing a jig. Okay, it wasn't his dancing that caused a commotion in the temple. It's the fact that he was able to stand up. And so all these people come together and Peter makes this statement to the crowd. He says, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That's the picture of repentance that we need to have when we're talking to somebody. Now, if somebody sins against you, go Talk to that person one-on-one. What happens if you're the one who sinned against somebody else and you realize it? Go to that person and talk to them one-on-one and repent and seek forgiveness. Turn back towards God. Turn back towards your fellow believer. See, the Christian life isn't just about our relationship with God. It's about our relationship with one another, too. If you look at the Ten Commandments, we see this picture. Commandment number one, two, three, and four have to do with how we relate to a holy God. You'll have no other gods before me. You won't take my name in vain. You won't have any images uh, that, that you're going to worship. And, and what's the last one? Honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Take a day of rest to worship me and to trust that I'm going to provide for your needs. But then if you look at 6 through 10, what does it have to do with? How we relate to the other people in God's community. It's important for us to love one another the way we love Christ. So, back here to Matthew 18, Jesus says, if your brother listens... If he hears, if he understands the offense, if he repents, remember, you've already forgiven him. If he repents, you have gained, you have won back, you have restored fellowship with that other believer. Fellowship is restored by repentance. And that's the pattern of our relationship with God, too. When we wander off into sin, the shepherd comes for us. We still have to turn around and see that he's there. When a fellow believer sins against us, Jesus tells us, act like the shepherd. Go seek that person out and seek reconciliation. What if they don't? What if they don't listen to you and they, they, they keep saying, I don't see how you can be offended by that. I didn't do anything wrong. I have nothing to repent of. Does Jesus say, withdraw your forgiveness? Or withdraw your forgiveness? No. He says, if they don't listen to you, then take one or two others. This is based on Jewish law. If a person went to trial for something, there had to be two or three witnesses for a guilty verdict. Right? So you take one or two other people with you. This is not trial by public opinion. The people should be people who are familiar with the offense. So if you have somebody in the congregation who's gossiping about you, and it has offended you, 
and you go to that person and they say, I don't see that I did anything wrong, then perhaps you ought to grab the person that they were gossiping with to go with you. So that when you sit down, the three of you or four of you and say, okay, you were telling everybody this, this is not true, this is a falsehood, or this has damaged my reputation, and it has hurt me greatly. Their testimony can line up with your testimony. And hopefully, by that combined testimony, this is an opportunity for the offender to understand, well, maybe maybe I didn't mean it that way, but that's really what happened. Because you know, sometimes we're blind to the things that we do wrong. Right? I know that's never happened in here. Every one of us, any time somebody accuses us of doing something wrong, we always just fess up to it and say, yep, that's exactly what I did, right? If you are married or ever have been married and you just nodded your head, I'm going to call you a liar right here in church. Because that's not what we do. Our default position is always to justify what we did and say that we didn't mean anything bad by it. Always. Right? I have never once, and she's not going to believe me because that's just how she is, I have never once gotten up in the morning and said, I'm going to be a butthead to my wife this morning. I'm glad we don't have an amen corner anymore. Sometimes I have to have somebody from outside come to me and say, hey, you know, you were being a real idiot this morning. You need, to, you need to apologize to your wife. Sometimes that's enough to get me to say, yeah, you're right. Now, as, as we have been together for 25 years, married, 28 years, almost 29 years, together as a couple, We have matured to the point where now when she tells me I'm being an idiot, it's a lot easier for me to say, yeah, you're right. If two or three people have observed the same offense, the offender might be willing to listen. However, there's always the possibility that their heart is so hard that maybe they they were doing it and they were doing it on purpose. They knew that they had offended you and they didn't care. So they weren't going to repent for it. That may be the case. Then Jesus says, take it to the church. Would you believe that there are only two times in the entirety of the Gospels that Jesus uses the word for church? Both of them here in Matthew. Once in Matthew chapter 16 that we've already looked at. And the other here in chapter 18. The Greek word is the word ekklesia. Ekklesia. It's a compound word. It means called out. Those who have been called out. It was typically used in in common Greek for a gathering of people for a religious purpose. Well, that makes sense, right? Jesus says the church. 
in this context, he's talking about the local church that you belong to. And you probably belong to it with this other believer who's caused offense. People didn't normally travel 25 or 30 miles to go to church back then because 25 to 30 miles would take you an entire day. So you would gather with believers in your neighborhood for the assembly. So take it to the assembly, the local church, your your local body. Only at that point is it supposed to become public limited. Limited just to the local assembly of believers. It's still not broadcasted out on the news. It's still not tell everybody in your social network. It's not put it out on Facebook. It is one-on-one, two or three witnesses, and then your local church. If they listen, now, the second time when you take two or three witnesses, Jesus doesn't say that if they listen, you've won back your brother. If they listen to the entire church, then you've won back your brother. He doesn't say that. It's implied. But what he does say is what happens if they don't. Jesus says if the offender refuses to listen even to their church family, which does in fact happen, I know that's hard to believe because we all love to listen to everybody that we worship with, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. We won't listen to our blood family, let alone just the family in Christ that we come together with once or twice a week, right? Sometimes we get a hard heart, a hard head, and we decide, you know what? I'm right, they're all wrong. Jesus says, let that person then be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. I got to tell you, from the perspective of a New Testament believer, that sounds harsh. To a Jew, there was a very clear meaning there. Now, if Jesus had been talking to the general Jewish population and he said that, treat him as a a Gentile and a tax collector, what would that mean? Have nothing to do with them. Nothing. You couldn't eat dinner at a Gentile's house. You wouldn't shake hands with a tax collector. You wouldn't even say hi passing on the street lest somebody think that you had some kind of relationship or friendship with that person and thus declare you to be unclean so you couldn't go to synagogue. You have nothing to do with them. But it's Jesus. And Jesus has already shown by the people that he keeps company with... Hang on, pause... Who wrote this gospel? Matthew. What was his job? He's a tax collector. <laughs> okay? How many Gentiles has Jesus already ministered to? The Syrophoenician woman up, up in uh, Galatia, or, or in uh, Galilee, rather. The, uh, the Roman centurion. He, he healed his servant. All... All of these people, Jesus has already blown the doors off of those boundaries between Gentile and tax collector and Jew. But we've already forgiven them. Right? When we went one-on-one, we've forgiven that person. 
Now, we might have to forgive them again if they told us to, to take a hike because they didn't do anything wrong. So when we came with two or three witnesses and, and they said, take a hike, I told you I haven't done anything wrong, we might have to forgive them again. That's the great thing about that word forgiveness in Scripture. It's a recurring action. It's one of those, one of those words that doesn't have an end. Right? There's, there's another one that I like, especially around this time of year because it wins me bonus points with, with Steph. Um, at least when I remember to do it. There's another one of those words that's like that. It has a start point, but it doesn't have a stop point. It's in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Sorry, guys, I hate to do this to you, but this is what it says, right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And that word love is a verb, so it's an action. It's something we have to do, not what we feel, right? Jesus never tells us to feel. He tells us to do. Because you can love without liking. And I know you all only get to see the good side of that lady sitting back there in the corner. But there's sometimes she's not likable. There's a lot of times I'm not likable, so it's even. Right? But Ephesians 5.25 says, Love, start. Your wife is Christ loved the church. There's no stop. It keeps going. That word repentance... I'm sorry, that word forgiveness, as it's used in Scripture, is one of those where you push play and it just goes on and on and on and on and on. Repeatedly. Continually. So we've already forgiven them. If we've forgiven them, how would we treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector? Yeah. We love them like Jesus would. Now, we don't, accept, we don't accept them <coughs> into the fellowship of the church. We don't treat them like a believer, which means when we do things like the Lord's Supper, we wouldn't invite them to participate because that is a meal that is for believers, Right? So we wouldn't invite a non-believer to participate in that because they don't have communion with the church. If we're to treat them like an unbeliever, then that comes part and parcel with it. Does it mean I wouldn't go out to dinner with them? No. I'd go out to dinner with them just like I'd go out to dinner with the unsaved person in order to share the gospel and show them the love of Christ. To restore that bond of fellowship. I would continue to pray for them. And I would pray with them that they would eventually come to the point where they understand or at least acknowledge and repent from that sin. Now, here's, here's something important for us, though. If we have a fellow believer who sins against us, do we have to go through all of this? No. No, we don't. Because we can choose to forgive and let go. Now, I would still go talk to the person. 
just to let them know. But I'm not going to worry about that whole taking two or three witnesses. I don't have to go that far. If I choose to forgive somebody, I've forgiven them. It's done. It's over with. I let them know. Hey, what you said really hurt me. Let's go out for pizza. I can choose not to hold that against them. Because love covers a multitude of sins. If I'm really in fellowship with my, my, my church members, if I'm really in fellowship with the people that I consider to be brothers and sisters in Christ, then I really can choose to not be offended. Now that may be the biggest heresy in the United States in 2018 because that seems to be our new national pastime is being offended by something. But I can choose not to be offended. I can choose not to be hurt. I can choose not to let that sin impact me. Why is all of this important? Before we get started here, in our observation of the Lord's Supper, let me read for you a little bit of introduction. In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes a letter to the Corinthian church. Now, Corinth, Corinth was a very metropolitan area. It was a lot like Gulfport in that it was a seaport where there was a lot of trade. There were a lot of people from different countries. There were a lot of people from different backgrounds. Paul had traveled into Corinth after he got chased out of Athens. He had come to Corinth. He had established the church. He had, uh, I mean, it, he had poured his life into these people for about a year. And after he travels away, 1 Corinthians 1 he writes back, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. So apparently Corinth was a Baptist church. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. Which camp of teaching do I happen to agree with? Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? So on and so on. Chapter 3. I address you not as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, because you're not ready for the greater things. And I keep going. When one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Sexual immorality, defiling the church. Lawsuits between believers. There are members of the church taking other members of the church to court. There were divisions in the church because of people and their convictions. 
Some were eating food that was offered to idols. Others were abstaining from it. It was causing divisions in the church. Idolatry. In the church? No way. Yeah. You know what the biggest idol is in the church today? Yeah. It's our schedule. It's our buildings. It's all of those things that we'll refuse to give up to minister to other people. All of these things are going on in church in Corinth. Whereas if people just followed what Jesus taught, right? Number one, choose not to be offended by everything that happens. But number two, if somebody does sin against you, then go talk to them one-on-one, right? Don't take them to court for Pete's sake. Go talk to them one-on-one. Go reconcile with your brother. Be kind to one another. Love one another. Bear one another's burdens. All those things that that Scripture tells us to do. If they'd listen to that stuff, there wouldn't have been a need for Paul to write this letter. And when we come to chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, in the following instructions, I don't commend you because when you come together, it's not for better but for worse. When you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. Even when they gathered for the Lord's Supper, they were bickering. You know, I, I talk to a lot of people on base. Occasionally I'll run into to folks that are interested in church life and that kind of thing. And, and when it comes out that I'm a pastor, it's not something that I advertise. It's just something that normally comes out of conversation. People will ask me the question, well, how big is your church? And when I, when I tell them that we have about 10 members on the books and about 20 to 25 regular attenders, eyeballs get this big. What? How do you guys even... I praise God that I have a small church. I'm happy that I have a small church because I know all of you. You can't be anonymous. If you're missing for a week, I'm going to know. Because that's a big part of the congregation. But even in small groups, there could still be conflict and bitterness. And so, Paul says, when you come together... You're not even doing the Lord's Supper. You aren't thinking of one another. One goes hungry, another goes drunk. Why why would a church do that? Because we don't bear with one another. And our natural human tendency is to not care about other people. I know I I Oh, that's That's the truth. Our natural tendency is to become self-absorbed. And so as we prepare this morning, as I as I uh, I'd lead you guys to a time of silent prayer and reflection, 
Paul reminds us not to do this in a unworthy manner. Verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. What is the body except the relationship between believers? So, that we do not come together for judgment, I'm going to ask everybody to pray silently. And I want you to think, I want you to consider, I want you to ask God to show you if there is someone that you have offended or someone who has offended you that you can go talk to that person and restore that relationship. If there is a sin of that nature or any other sin that would keep you from taking the Lord's Supper, with a clear conscience, and please feel free to pass it by. That's okay. We're not in a hurry. <laughs> At least I'm not. I didn't bring a canoe. So let's go ahead and go to a time of silent prayer, please. <laughs> 